Hello everyone, great to see you. I want to warmly welcome you here to HDB Courtfield Gardens and um, particularly to this seminar. Um, I want to put you all at ease. Today's talk is what to do when you can't do any less. And typically people don't go to stress seminars because they make you feel much worse uh, than uh, they did before you went. They make you feel bad uh, because ultimately they always end up with the line, of course, you just need to do less. So I want everyone to take a big sigh of relief right now to know that I'm not going to ask you during this seminar or after it to do any less. This is about how we can do our best uh, with what we've got at the speed that we're working. My name's Will Vanderhart. I'm pastoral chaplain here at Holy Trinity Brompton. I've been a priest for 11 years and I specialize in emotional health. Uh, and I run a charity called mindandsoul.info, which uh, is filled with resources around emotional and mental health. And I want to put all of you perfectionists at your ease right now and tell you that all of the slides from this talk are going to be available online for you to print off afterwards. So you don't need to write any notes. I also want to let those of you who are auditory processors know that you can hear this talk again online. So you don't need to write any notes either. So you can all put your pens and pencils away. If you want to tweet about the seminar, it's LC15 or at leadconf, and I'm at Vicar Will, um, and you're really welcome to do that. For those of you who feel a little bit more shy, we're going to be doing some Q&A at the end, and I'll check my phone to see if people have tweeted in any questions they want me to answer, but they don't want to um, fess up in public. So uh, we'll do that a little later on. Um, and I, I want to kind of really sort of encourage you uh, to relax into this seminar. Sometimes, you know, we've had a lot of information overload the last couple of days, and it can be like, oh my goodness, another thing that I need to know. I just sense the Holy Spirit will give you what you need from this seminar. Okay, so don't feel that you need to be a complete finisher. There'll be a couple of things, maybe a couple of gems for you to apply. And if you get one or two things from this that will help you, then my job is done. But let the Holy Spirit just impress on your heart those one or two things from today, rather than trying to work too hard to kind of digest the whole thing. So we're going to... Um, make a start. I think upstairs is just open. Hello, everyone on the balconies. Um, and that's going to be filling up for a little while longer because it's a little walk uh, for us from um, up the road. And, um, you know, recently it was, um, recently it was the, uh, the London Marathon. Was any, were there any runners from here? Anyone? Uh, yes, congratulations up the top. I think just, just one. Well done. It, there's only just one because it's actually really hard. And I thought, I thought I'd be a bit, I thought I'd be a little bit boastful and bring along my own marathon medal to show you. Yes. Thank you. Apart from it's quite a long time ago because I'm getting a little bit old now. This is in 2000 when I, I ran the New York Marathon. And I hadn't done really any training per se, but I was phoned up by an old friend from university who asked me and a couple of mates whether we'd fill in a couple of spaces for a few marathon runners that had dropped out. So we were like, oh yeah, that sounds fun. Great, great. We get to go to New York and we've just got to run for a few hours to kind of pay for our meal ticket home. That's, that's great. So, um, so we arrived in New York and, uh, I think my friend actually went out and bought some trainers while we were there, which was not a good idea. Um, although running in school shoes would have been a problem too. Uh, the key thing was that we were given these t-shirts. You know those Fruit of the Loom t-shirts? They're kind of quite heavy weave. And the chap who ran the charity called PSP, Progressive Supranuclear Palsy, that we were running for, he got these t-shirts printed for us. So we kind of felt obligated to wear them. But I remember putting it on and thinking, well, first it was an extra large, and then it was kind of extra thick. And I, I was worried about how hot I was going to get. But little did I know, after 10 miles, I'll be soaking wet 
And this t-shirt would be like rubbing up and down and up and down and every step. And, and after about 11 miles, I realised my nipples were bleeding. And I tell you, it is not a good look. Uh, whilst I was running along and people were looking at the runners in front of me and cheering on, they look at me and go, oh. And at that point in the marathon, I was thinking, okay, well, I've run uh, sort of 11 miles. I've got 15 miles to go. And I was imagining what state my chest would be in after 15 more miles with a sort of cheese greater effect, wet fruit of the loom t-shirt. And I prayed at that moment. I said, God, please give me something for my nipples. I, I, I just, honestly, it's, just, it's the prayer, it's the prayer I prayed. I just said, God. And I was running through Brooklyn at the time. I remember, literally, I prayed, God, please give me something for my nipples. And I literally got to probably where Nidra is at the back window right now. And there was a large Puerto Rican man in a big leather jacket. And he flung open his jacket, holding a large tub of Vaseline, and said, Hey, buddy, you need some Vaseline? I was, I was like, oh my goodness, Jesus is here. <laughs> uh, and I, I went over, you know, I was like straight there. I was lathering myself in Vaseline under my arms, everything, you know. I was covered in Vaseline. I was the greasiest runner in the whole of the New York Marathon 2000. And you know, nothing hurt from that point onwards. I was slippery and great. It was a fantastic kind of end of the finish of three days later. I still couldn't walk, but the nipples were fine. The key thing is, this talk is a bit like that example. Actually, I couldn't stop running the marathon that I was running, but I was suffering whilst I was running, and I needed something whilst I was running to make me better. I needed to be able to carry on running the race set before me. I need to be the athlete that reached the finish line, but I need some Vaseline for my nipples whilst I was doing it. And I don't like stress seminars where you come along and you're running the race that God set before you and someone says, hey, you know what, like this, this is, you know, this is too much for you. You need to sit down. You need to stop running the race because actually the only way out of this stressful situation that you're in now is stopping, creating more kind of margin. Now, we all know that any high-level leaders here don't have margin because the reality is the more you lead, the more you lean, And we either lean on Christ or we fall over. We need restoration whilst we're running. We just don't want to sit down and stop running the race set before us. And that's what I I want to kind of change your mind today about stress seminars. Um, This is uh, maybe how you feel you're suffering right now. This is maybe where you feel you're at, you know, this is what your typical stress seminar will tell you. This is you on the left. You've got a massive rock on your head and you can't see your computer anymore. But they tell you this is where you should be. Standing on a beach with your arms stretched wide in the morning sunshine because real leaders do it easy. Now that's the myth that we hear. That if you're successful in leadership, not only are you good at leading, but you also do it like you're lying down. Of course, the reality is not true. And I'm looking around this room and I can see lots of leaders that I love and respect. And I know that they've gone through hard times. And if you listen to Joe Malone this morning, you would have heard the same story. If you listened to Joyce Mayer yesterday, you would have heard the same story. If you heard Cardinal Vincent Nichols this morning, you heard the same story. Leadership is hard and there are moments when we go, oh God, I just need some Vaseline for my nipples. 
Now, I need to be able to keep running this race that you've set before me so I can reach the end. But we've also got to remember that Christ died for the church so we don't have to. Now, this isn't a seminar which is all for those people who want to go, yeah, punish me more. I want to suffer more. You know, I, I, want, to, I want to look like bad. I want to look like I'm really suffering so people think I'm great. Because that's not about God getting the glory. That's about us believing that some glory in our sufferings. When actually our sufferings speak of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got to recognize this is not here for you to punish yourself. This is remedial work on the journey. But let's get away from the idea that real leadership looks like this. And also let's get away from the mythology that dealing with stress looks like this. I want to change your mind about stress. It's interesting in 2 Timothy 2, 4 to 6, Paul uses analogies that he keeps on using over and over again. You'll come across the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer in the scriptures over and over and over again. Paul's always talking about the athlete who's running the race to win the prize. He's talking about the soldier who's, who's fighting for a victory. And, and he talks about the farmer who's sowing for a harvest. All of those leadership professions, they're, they're, they're looking for outcomes over a long season. You know, they're, they're investing for a long season. Uh, and what we're looking for here is uh, an engagement with stress that's realistic and remedial. Ultimately, We've been taught that if we want to be less stressed, we need to do less. But actually, stress can sometimes be the stress that the stress is. In 1951, the British Medical Journal said that stress, in addition to being itself, was also the cause of itself and the result of itself. <laughs> Have you seen that to be true? You know, is it almost painful to stop and say, I'm feeling a bit stressed, because you think at that moment you're going to totally collapse and just have a nervous breakdown? Like some people wake up every day and think, I am not stressed, I am not stressed. I'm not even looking in the mirror. And if someone at work says, hey, you look a bit stressed, they go, no, I'm not. Just slightly delusional right now. I'd rather be delusional than believe that I'm actually stressed because I know that if I know that I'm stressed, then I'll really fall apart. So stress has become this enemy, but it's an addition to being itself. It's the cause of itself and also the result of itself. But what if stress was actually good for you? Suddenly quiet. Temperatures just dropped about five degrees. Small piece of tumbleweed rolling across the front of the stage. Now, this is not a new idea. In fact, I was just in a coffee shop with my wife just before I came in here. And I was peering over the shoulder of a woman in front of me who was reading the newspaper very rudely. No, that was me being rude to her, not her being rude by reading the newspaper. And in the copy of the Times too, it said, stress might be good for you. I thought, oh, I'm just about to do a seminar about that, but I'm not going to read that article because it might confuse me. The thing is, what if stress was actually good for you? This is a bit of a stretch, if you like, but stress guilt is a powerful and common phenomenon amongst leaders today, particularly Christian leaders. This idea that actually we should be doing it easy, as I said, that actually, you know, if we were real Christian leaders, we wouldn't be stressed at all. And we often give away platitudes, you know, don't lean on your own strength. Lean on the strength of the Lord. You know, I'm not stressed. I'm, I'm at peace all the time, no matter what's going on. I loved it when Justin Welby said of the Pope, who obviously is a saint, uh, both saints, but the Archbishop, I'm going to be careful what I say now because I'm employed by the Church of England. But I love what Justin, I love what Justin said to say, I wish I could say I had peace all the time. The reality is that, that actually life is hard, leadership is hard, and it's a challenge 
dealing with the pressures of our leadership is a challenge. But we can deal with stress in two unhelpful ways. We can either live in denial or we can spend our whole time making a stress apology. Have you done that? Christians do that all the time. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm a, I'm a bit stressed right now. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I'm just dealing with a lot of things. I'm, I'm a bit stressed out. I'm really sorry uh, for being a bit stressed at the moment. Imagine this. Imagine that we're in Scotland. Everyone's talking about Scotland these next few days. Um, so we're, we're in Scotland, and we've gone climbing for the weekend. Apart from you and me like climbing, but your family and my family don't like climbing. So they're going to meet us at the top of the mountain. There's, there's a way of driving up. And they've set out a nice big picnic rug, and we've been climbing up the mountain all day. And they're sitting down at 4 o'clock for a high tea, waiting for us to climb up the rock face. And finally, at about 4.15, you know, you throw your arm up at the top, and I throw my arm up, and we heave ourselves over the edge, and we sort of roll onto the tartan rug that they've laid out before us, where the cream tea is waiting for us. And we're kind of panting, exasperated, but looking forward to the scones and jam. And then they say, oh, you look a bit sweaty. They're like, yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's right. That's because I've climbed from down there to up here, and you drove up here. That's why you're not sweaty. Uh, oh, okay. You don't say, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry I got a bit sweaty. I'm so sorry that I got sweaty climbing up these 2,000 meters of rock face. I'm really sorry. Uh, I, you know, I didn't mean to. But that actually is a realistic review of how we deal with stress. People work hard and achieve much, they deal with stress and then they tell everyone, I'm so sorry. I should have got here looking like I didn't make any effort. No, I should have got up here looking like I hadn't tried at all. But that's actually what we're saying. When we constantly make stress apologies, we're saying, oh, I'm so sorry that it looked like it was actually hard work to get here. You know, Joe Malone didn't sit up there today and go, oh, yeah, you know, so easy getting here. Didn't want any of you to think that any hard work was involved at all. Friends are here who run Temple Spa. It's great to see you, friends. Heard their story, amazing story of hard work, labor, investment, stretch. Now, if you stretch, you will sweat. If you labor, you will deal with stress. And that's why I want to say, is stress really bad? Is it the evil that you've learned it to be? Or is it a reaction to the change of leadership? What if actually we could change your relationship with stress today? Now, for those skeptics amongst you, I'm not going to for a minute pretend there isn't a bit of a good stress and a bad thing, which we're going to call strain. Uh, I I just want to be absolutely transparent with you. There's no kind of tricks here. This is just a reality check on how we've distorted how we respond to the thing that they call stress. A friend of mine, Kate Middleton, who I run Minor Soul with, she's brought out a brilliant book, which I really recommend to you, called Refuel. And in it, she says, stress describes any change which requires us to respond. Now, honestly, in leadership, who would not be stressed? Because it is our business to respond to change. We are are responding to the change outside of us. We're responding to the change within our teams and within ourselves all the time. We are constantly reacting to change. Hans Selye, who described stress as we understand it today for the first time in 1936, he said the non-specific response of the body to any demand for change 
re- reacts in stress. The, the non-specific response of the body to any demand for change reacts in stress. That's what stress is. So something is demanded of us and we respond accordingly. And the reaction that we receive is a stress reaction. Bill Heibel said of change, great leadership is by definition relentlessly developmental. It's relentlessly developmental. So if you're in leadership, it's going to be relentlessly stressful. So it's just like running a marathon. Apart from it's like running a marathon on a marathon on a marathon. That's why it's so futile to tell leaders that they just need to sit down. Because actually, what would that look like? You stop being a leader. And actually, God hasn't said, hey, Moses, why I stop being a leader? I know it's pretty taxing at the moment, so I've decided, you know, just give up leadership. Let the people of Israel wander around the desert, round and round and round. Because actually, you're not really meant to be at all stressed in leadership. No, of course he didn't. He brought his father along in, his father-in-law, to give him a bit of advice for how you could actually rub on the Vaseline to keep the leadership going for the long haul. Isn't it paradoxical that we can celebrate change as the context of leadership and yet feel so ashamed of the sweat that precedes our leadership response? That's what we're doing when we're saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm a bit stressed. We're being ashamed of the labor that leadership demands of us. When actually, we need to be more honest of the reality of the hard labor it takes to win in leadership. Let's move forward. I want to give you some practical tips to actually, if you like, finesse your journey and make it more, uh, if you like, palatable over the long term. To stay in the stress zone, but not to move in the strain zone. And changing your mind about stress is also changing your reactions to stress. And the first, uh, if you like, tip I want to give you today is don't predict the future. Coming to a stress seminar, as I said, can lead you to think, oh my goodness, I'm going to go to this stress seminar. I might hear someone that makes me think, I've got to stop. Or I might collapse after the stress seminar just as my mind absorbs how stressed I really am. We make negative predictions of the future all the time. And I want to tell you that they are nearly all out of whack. So often, we always default to the negative. You know, and actually, we become far more stressed. In fact, we move from stress to strain because we're already living catastrophic outcomes that have never happened. I wrote a book um, a couple of years ago called The Worry Book, and in that we did a lot of research with people about negative predictions. And we did seminars reaching a 1,000 people, and we worked out that actually of the 1,000 people, most people had you know, sort of 500 random worries in a year that they would spend months agonizing over. And in, in groups of 1,000, we got people to stand up if, they, if 10 or more of their worries had come true. And I can tell you, in about in about five seminars, less than 50 people stood up for 10 or more of their worries. And less than 30 people stood up for five or more of their worries. I think we totaled out that groups of 1,000 with 500 worries each, that's 500,000 worries, less than 1,000 worries of those 500,000 worries had come true across the board. But people are being consumed by negative prediction-making all the time. And when we're stressed we're more likely to make negative predictions. Our amygdalas, our stimulated part of our brain becomes more imaginative and we start believing worst-case scenarios. We've got to recognize that we're more likely to make negative predictions, but actually we need to restrain ourselves and understand that only God knows the future. 
In Luke uh, 12, 20, Jesus tells, tells this brilliant story about the farmer who builds barns and then bigger barns and then bigger, bigger barns and then bigger, bigger, bigger barns. And, and you know, he's predicting the future because he's saying, oh, there's going to be a time when I'm going to be able to kick back and enjoy eating all of this grain that I'm going to make into bread or donuts or something. And I'm just going to kick back and eat barns worth of this stuff. There's going to be a time when I can relax. And, and, and Jesus says in the, in the story, you fool, this very night your life will be taken from you. Now actually, God has called us, if you like, to live in this present day. Not to make negative predictions of the future, which compound our experience. And sometimes it's this very stressed chart that is the worst prediction for people who are struggling in leadership or feeling a bit of stress and strain. You see this published everywhere. You know, this is your performance here, and this is the stress level you're experiencing. And people start over here lying down a little, a little stressed, and then the optimum stress, and then too much stress, and it's an overload, you know, and you immediately think, oh my goodness, that's, that's where I am. And then you get over here to burnout, and you're thinking, oh, that's not where I want to be. Now, if I asked you as a group, just polled you completely honestly where you think you are right now, most people would say they're on the line between optimum stress and too much stress. And the reason they'll say that is that they probably think there's too much stress in their life, but they just don't want to admit that they're in overload. But of course, I could change those categories and call them anything I liked, and you'd still probably say you're somewhere in the middle. But you could imagine being over here. Most people will be thinking, yeah, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Oh no, but now I can see myself, like lying down in a dark room. And all of my employees have all left. And, you know, now my business has gone to zero. And the bank are reclaiming their loans. And now I've lost my house. And now I'm destitute on the street. No one wants to talk to me anymore. I'm filled with shame and disappointment. You know, we go from A to Z in one step. And actually, we need to stay in the present moment, not predicting the future. And this is partly compounded, as I say, by the negative associations we make to stress it can become the cue for these negative predictions. Oh, you're a bit stressed today. No, I'm not. Seeing the future cloud darkly over in front of you. What if actually you're saying, yeah, I'm quite stressed at the moment because we've got about nine different projects going on, but I I think things are, we're going through a stretch, but this is going to be okay. I'm living in this moment dealing with what I can deal with. Let's look at changing predictions because this is really key for you, navigating stress and avoiding strain. Catastrophic predictions look like this. They're typically all or nothing thinking. You're either boom or you're bust. Have you noticed that? If you're a leader, things are either going great or they're going terrible. But there's nothing really in the middle. Uh, We tend to uh, generalize the negative. So what we do is we group things that are negative together to kind of prove our point. Have you seen that three points make a straight line? Why do bad things always happen in threes? Well, of course they don't. But if you say something in three different ways, it makes it sound true. Ah, oh, I had a really, yeah, I've got this really difficult problem. Uh, and also, that difficult problem happened about three weeks ago. And, and about three days before that, this other difficult problem happened. Things are really tough. I mean, I've had this, I've had this, and I've had this. Why does grouping things in three suddenly make everything valuable? People are like, oh, things keep happening again. What we do is generalize the negative and then look for historic evidence. Have you seen how this works in your life? In 1983, I had a real problem, just like this. Really? Yeah, this keeps happening to me. (laughs) What do you mean it keeps happening to you? Well, it happened to me in 1983. 
Yeah, that's actually quite a long time ago. Yeah, but I mean, it's happened again. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, 20 years. It's not that bad. No, but it's happened to me twice, and that's a sign. Now, people, people gather historic evidence. They're like, they, they fish in their past to try and find the things that prove that something's going to go wrong in their present or in their future. Just because it's happened to you before, it does not mean it's going to happen to you again. And actually, we learn from some of the suffering and pain in our experience. You know, we learn from our failures. Lots of great business leaders have had to let go of one or even two or even three businesses. Lots of songwriters have written off album after album, even band after band after band, to finally make a great hit. If you're emotionally sensitive today, be cautious of emotional reasoning. I had a breakdown in 2005 after being involved in the London bombings. and I got acutely anxious and... Uh, Subsequently, I had to take some time off work. And um, in recovery, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I'm a fragile person. I need to be really careful because anything could tip me over the edge. Constantly looking out for anything that may be mildly stressful, like anything that may be mildly problematic. And then scanning myself to think, oh, am I becoming anxious again? Is history going to repeat itself? Now, if you've had an emotional health issue in the past, or even a mental health problem today, you are not a weak person. You are not a weak person. In fact, some of the strongest people I know deal with the greatest adversity. Just because you've been through trials and tribulations in your past doesn't mean that you're not a strong person today, or even that you weren't a strong person at that point in your life. Now, the reality is we, we can reason with our emotions and go, oh, I'm a bit stressed, it's all going to fall apart right now. But God's called you to run this race, and he's going to equip you for it. And maybe some of the tools you learn in some of the darkest and and dankest parts of your life will be the tools you need right now to keep running the race that God's called you to. And then we've got self-referencing. This always happens when we get really stressed. Humans are naturally narcissistic. Have you noticed when you're... you're, People say when your life's really stressed, that's when you're going to start praying. Is that really true? I don't find that particularly true. When you're in crisis, maybe, but when you're really stressed, you kind of become quite self-referencing and start saying things like, how am I going to get myself out of this problem? You know, uh, how, how can I suddenly make everything better? We have to make the move between the stress zone into the strain zone when we become very self-referencing and we start asking ourselves, how are we going to fix this problem? And nearly always we make very instantaneous or immediate decisions which relieve the pressure in the short term, but don't actually do anything to benefit the journey in the long term. And finally, we become hyper-responsible. And we feel like our state, if you like, is a responsibility for everyone else. Someone asked me a question at the same seminar yesterday. They said, look, you know, if you'll start pulling back and doing less, you know, or pushing more onto other people, that's not really fair on them, is it? You know, that's not really fair. I mean, you're making their lives harder, aren't you? I said, look, if you're running a business and you don't take care of yourself and you have a nervous breakdown and have to leave the business behind, you've just made 100 people unemployed. Now who's selfish? It was like, oh, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess that, that, that would be me then. You see, the thing is, we, we, we think we're responsible for everyone and everything. And the more stressed we become, when we start moving into the strain zone, we start thinking that we're responsible for everyone's well-being and even everyone's happiness. When actually life isn't really like that. Have you found this? I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of empath, so I, I was kind of looking around, you know, seeing how everyone's doing, and, and, and I feel bad if people are having a bad time. 
And when I was a church leader up in Harrow, I used to kind of scan the congregation. When you're a sole leader, you know, you tend to do this. You stand up during worship and you kind of gently scan the congregation to kind of see how everyone's getting on. Now, if someone looked like they were in a bad state, I'd be like, oh, I need to see them afterwards. And then I'd go back to worshiping and then I'd start thinking, oh, maybe they've just got the hump with me. Have you ever done that? Oh, I think maybe they gave me a bad look. And then at coffee time, you kind of hover around and you're like, oh, hey, June, how's it going? Oh, I'm not, not very good. Oh, really? Um, and you think I need some more detail to make sure it really isn't me. Oh, really? What, uh, what sort of area is uh, not going well for you at the moment? Oh, it's stuff at church. Oh, church. Oh, that's something to do with me. Oh, uh, anything particularly about church, like maybe the leadership or anything like that? Uh, oh, the coffee rotor. Oh, great. Oh, June. I can fix that for you. No problem. Let's have a chat. Come and see me on Monday. We'll have a coffee together and go through the whole thing. You know, we, we think we're somehow responsible for other people's happiness or well-being. And that compounds stress and, and moves it into strain. We need to look again at actually prediction-making in our experience and, and, and have a moderate outlook, see the positives. You know, people say, oh, I'm a glass-half-empty person. No, you're not. You're just a person who chooses the empty glass. You can choose to see the positives or the negatives, but you're not born like God didn't ordain you, the empty glass person. You say, oh, I've chosen this one to be particularly pessimistic. <laughs> it's just not the case. God didn't do that. You can choose to see the positives. And you can stay rooted in the present. Uh, you can have an emotional awareness to say, mm, okay, I'm feeling a bit pressured right now. I'm feeling a bit stressed right now. And it's common for me when I'm quite stressed to start looking around to check whether everyone else is okay. And actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to kind of measure myself right now. And you can, you can have an inclusive vision and ask other people to help you. It's remarkable how we all kind of withdraw, if you like, into our little stress place, think we need to get out of it in order that we can carry on helping other people. Actually, it's in that stress place we need other people to help us. Say, actually, you know what? You are my resources and my friends. You need to come alongside me right now. We need to do this stuff together. And we need to stay proportionate. You know, it's sad to hear how people let businesses go because they were stressed at a season. And later on, they've gone, oh, I really wish I just got some extra help at that point and we could have muddled through. Markets would have changed. You know, oil prices went up. Cars were popular again. Whatever it is that you're doing, you know, something might change. Let's stay proportionate. Well, if we're going to change predictions, we need to uh, look at our mind state. And I, I want to, um, uh, I'm going to show you this little photograph. This is uh, me and my wife. And uh, we are at the top of a mountain called Mount Kinabalu, which is in Borneo in Southeast Asia. So after I had a breakdown, thinking that I'm going to get lots of like, love and sympathy from my wife, she decides to book us on an extreme adventure trip around Borneo, which is like filled with jungles and like nasty, creepy crawlies. She thinks the best way to help me get over myself is not by self-referencing lying on the sofa and being terrified that I'm going to be pushed over the edge again. It's actually by taking me to a really dangerous place with lots of dangerous, creepy crawlies to get life into perspective. At the time, I can say I was a little apprehensive when we might have had some crosswords, but actually I have to concede that she was absolutely right. Now, the thing about Mount Kinabalu is it's four... 1,095 meters, which is about 13,500 feet. But 
Mount Kinabalu starts at sea level and then goes up. So it's particularly impressive. It's a bit like Ayers Rock. It kind of comes out of the ground and it's just there. Whereas most tall mountains, you go up into the mountain range and then you go up that mountain. Mount Kinabalu is like this giant rock on the ground in the clouds. And you're thinking, wow, how on earth am I going to get up there? It's it's 14,500 footsteps and takes two days to climb. Now, resilience training has become really popular in industry, and some of you who are in industry will, will know about this and heard a little bit more about this recently. This idea that actually we can become resilient leaders, and resilience is about how we engage and relate to stress over the long term to get uh, good outcomes. Management works by limiting work volumes and supplying resources to facilitate good outcomes. But leadership doesn't have that benefit. You know, you as a manager can help other people do less. But if you're the leader, you, no one's saying, oh, look at you having a tough time. I'm going to come into your business and just take some responsibility away from you just because I like you. No one's going to do that. No one does that for leaders. Leaders have to be self-referencing in terms of their own management. They have to say, well, how am I going to lead well for the long haul? Uh, I'm not being managed effectively by anyone else. Leadership has no objective limiter, if you want to describe it well. Resilience, though, is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats or significant sources of stress, so says the American Psychology Association. So resilience is what we need for leadership when we're in the stress zone. And this mountain taught me a lot about resilience. Because when you're standing in the car park looking up 4,095 meters, you're really thinking there's no way I'm going to get up there. But what you have to do to climb Mount Kilabalu is just break it down into 200 flights of stairs. Now, when I say a flight of stairs, it's not quite like a kind of nice flight of stairs. They're like large steps that are about a foot high and, you know, rocks and boulders. And you kind of, kind of launch yourself up them with these big sticks and you keep on going. But every time you get to the top of one, if you like, staircase in nature, you can either carry on going up the next one and kind of see the top ahead of you. Or you can turn around, look down the staircase, and go, huh, just climb that. It's not bad, is it? You see, every time you climb a staircase and you celebrate the climb, you're building resilience to climb another staircase. If we were going to split the group into, into two, for example, we were going to take this side and say, you've just got to look at the top of the mountain and get to the top, and you guys are going to stop at the top of every staircase and give thanks you guys are going to get there first. And you guys are going to take a little bit longer. But if I asked you who's going to want to climb the mountain again, it ain't going to be you guys. It's going to be you guys. Because you built resilience over the journey. Now, uh, Mount Kinabalu was this experience of climbing, of breaking things down into staircases, conquering one staircase at a time. And it was pretty scary. But actually, taking it one step at a time and building resilience made me realize I can take another step. And I want to say to you today, prophetically, you can take another step. You see, the thing is, I think you underestimate how flexible and resilient you are. And I think the whole stress propaganda stuff has left you thinking, if I'm stressed, then I'm going to break. But actually, you're not. Human Human beings are incredibly flexible and adaptable. 
One of the things having a nervous break- breakdown has taught me is my ability to be flexible and adaptable. But it comes from flexing both out and in, not just flexing out and out and out. You are adaptable and you're flexible and maybe you're more resilient than you believe yourself to be. Actually, leadership is not about wrapping ourselves up in cotton wool and sitting down on a sun lounge and saying, hmm, that's not really for me because I got a bit sweaty. Actually, it's saying, I can flex, I can stretch, and I can achieve. And so I'm looking rather happy. My wife's looking slightly happier because she kind of took the lead and actually got me to the top at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, but at that place of kind of seeing the curvature of the earth and looking down, there was a lot of, oh, okay. I can do this. It was a central part of my recovery. Not that you need to climb a mountain if you have an anxiety disorder, but just want to say, it was, for me, it was a central part of my recovery. The next tip I want to give you about how to stay, if you like, in the stress zone and not in the strain zone is don't hate time. You know, it's amazing to me how angry we get about the thing that God ordered for our own well-being. People are like, oh, I haven't got enough time, as if you could get more time, like, Who's going to give you some? You're going to buy some in a shop? Where's it, where, do you, where do you get extra? You know, people are like, oh, time is against us. Really? Is it like some sort of bully in the corner who's like flexing his knuckles, getting ready to like hammer you? You know, time isn't on my side. Oh, he's always on someone else's side, but not yours. You know, we have all these weird phrases about how we can hate time. We personify time as this horrible enemy that's leaning over us. But time pressure is the great constrainer. Life's bandwidth has moved from dial-up to 60 gigabytes in 20 years. And yet we still think we can cheat time. You know, people, uh, people stressed in the 1960s like, oh, I sent a letter a week ago and I still haven't got a response. Now we're like, I sent an email three minutes ago and no one's got back to me yet. It's the same reaction. You know, it's the same sweat. I see if time is going to come to do you a favor or change the game or he's, he's always against you. you know, people who demonize time will always find themselves in the strain zone rather than in the stress zone. I say that if time is your enemy, I can promise you that stress will be your friend. But if time is on your side, stress will be off your back. And, and that's not some sort of mystical phrase like you can kind of massage time and he's going to come alongside you and go, hey, I'm your friend. Time is time. But you can change your relationship with time, which will change your relationship with stress. You know what? I made a decision a couple of years ago that I will always be early. It sounds really pious, like I'm always going to be early. Like that's a good thing to do. No, it's not a good thing to do per se. It's just a thing to do. The thing is, I've realized if I'm always early, I've always got time to spare. That's time I can spend as I like. It's great. I arrived early. I arrived early here. I was about 15 minutes early and I stood outside in a cloud of dust and wind. But it was okay. It was all right. And the key thing is that I, I, I'm never late, not for anyone else's benefit, but for my own. Because I've always got time to kill, you know, time to spare. It's great. You know, it's a decision that I've made because I've seen time poverty amongst leaders who are always rattling from one thing to the next. And they're always saying, oh, I'm, I'm always late. I'm always under pressure. I'm always strained. Well, whose fault is that? It's not times. He's not got it in for you. It, it's you who are mismanaging your time. I love being early. Not only does it give me time, but also people think I'm punctual, which is apparently a good thing. People like to make friends with me when I'm hanging around, which is also great. 
So I'm early. I haven't got loads of time at the end of what I do, but I have plenty of time at the beginning. And, and it's good because time is a gift from God. I find it, you know, it's such a helpful thing to think about, to change your mind about, to think about time as being a gift from God rather than someone who got it in for you. I love this um, uh, quote from Reinhold Niebuhr. This is the sort of foundation of most of the AA and SA and NA uh, treatment plans. It says, uh, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed and the courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Like in the spirit, let that settle on you. I want to say time is one thing that you cannot change. There are 24 hours in a day. There are seven days in a week. There's 365 days in this year. You cannot change time. Make time your friend. It's an immovable feast in your life. You know, in the French Revolution in 1793, the French tried to take control of the clock away from God. So they actually created a new clock and a new calendar, and they changed the length of a week from seven days to ten days. Amazing. They're desperate to move time away from the control of God. You know, in just 12 years, there was incredible chaos in France. There was nervous breakdown and confusion. And by 1805, the clocks went back, the days went back, the weeks went back, the calendar went back. And every week was a seven-day week again because God ordinance that we would work for six days and on the seventh day we would rest. Now, I'm a priest. I work on Sundays. I work every Sunday and I work harder on Sundays than I probably work on any other day of the week. But that does not mean that I am exempt from the rule of God's time. That actually I spend my sixth day resting. I I spend that one day, that special day, when the clock strikes 12 on my sixth day, work stops and, and rest begins. Now, that for me looks quite chaotic and patchy and grouped into different hours and segments, but it is my Sabbath time. And because time is my friend, it's a gift. It's not a constraint that I hate. I don't go, oh, dang it. I can't believe it. God's got to make me sit down now for a, a whole day of stuff. I can't be productive. So annoying. I can't believe God would do that to me. He must really hate me. I don't think that. I think, wow, good job God loves me. And he's got this thing set aside for me because it's good for me. It's my responsibility and it's my joy. Now, I never want to bully anyone about what that looks like. But I want to ask you to take personal responsibility for falling in love with the gift of time that God has given you. What would it look like to live within that gift? To celebrate its constraints? How would your life change? could be amazing. Let's move on uh, as we're going forward today. I want to I make another kind of key tip for you guys as you're rubbing the Vaseline on the marathon run. And that's that expectations are not facts. It's amazing to me how many people move from stress to strain because of the weight of expectation that is upon them. And um, stress that's positive and a good stretch up is nothing to be feared. If anything, it's to be celebrated. It's something that shows that you're growing and ranging out of yourself. But imagine every time you reached up on the rock face, someone moved the handhold just a few inches up and to the right. Imagine every time you, know, you, you went to raise your foot into a, uh, into a crevice on the rock face, actually that crevice just disappeared. And you found your leg kind of 
floundering in, in the heights. That's what people's leadership experience is often like when they move from stress to strain. Because they're not living under positive or helpful expectations. They're living under the expectations of people who will never, ever be satisfied. You know, I did some work with a woman who, was, uh, who had a severe nervous breakdown a couple of years ago. And she was extremely successful in her career. She was unbelievably successful and she'd achieved incredible amounts in her field. She was very well celebrated. And it was a shock to everyone in her 60s to have a really bad nervous breakdown. And in working with her, it transpired that she said that everything that she had done up to that point, she'd done in order that her mum would say, you know what, I love you, you've done a really good job. And when her mum died, she finally realised that no one was ever going to say, hey, I love you, well done, you've done a really good job. That's the end. That's it. She was working in the stress and strain zone for, uh, to meet the expectations of someone who would perpetually be dissatisfied because they were a dissatisfied person. And this poor woman suffered the consequences of working under the burden of expectations which were not true and were not realistic and were not good. Now, many people who I work with in my organization, Mind and Soul, when you dig deep, those people who've moved from stress to strain are nearly always carrying unhelpful expectations from other people or from themselves that bear no semblance to the reality that they're living. And often the voice of God has got really convoluted and, and really messed up in that whole thing. So actually they're saying, oh, no, God really expects more from me. God, God actually, he, you know, God, God wants me to really suffer more you know, for the gospel than I am right now. And actually, I need to push it harder and do more and achieve more, and I can't be satisfied. I read the Bible, and I see a God who wants to satisfy us, and yet I live in a world which is perpetually dissatisfied. I see a God who, who provides water to a woman and says, drink this, and you'll never thirst again. Can you imagine a, a, an advertising campaign like that, or a drink that actually did that? You know, Coke, Schweppes, they would be bust if there was a drink you could drink and never thirst again. Or, you know, I'm the bread of life, eat this. See, see where this will satisfy your need. In Greek mythology, there was a story about someone called Tantalus who had fallen out, if you like, with the gods because he'd done all sorts of bad stuff. And in the mythology, they stand Tantalus, the gods' punishment for Tantalus is that they stand him in a sea of fruits, which is apparently very delectable in Greece and the period. And uh, he stands in a sea of fruits and he can eat what he likes, but he will never, ever be satisfied. That's where the word tantalizing comes from. And I think for many people in leadership in the stress zone, they're just like Tantalus. They're standing in the sea and they're eating all the fruits, but they will never, ever be satisfied because the expectations are blown. And I think God calls us to be satisfied by his presence. He's actually called us to, be, to find our satisfaction in him. And that's the greatest antidote to the power of negative expectations in our lives. If we know that God can satisfy our need, and more than that, if we know that we are acceptable in his sight, we stop running after other people's dreams and living other people's lives. As we heard a great talk last night, and uh, you know, I don't want any spoilers for anyone else who's in the other venue, but you know, the whole plan was keep your eyes on the track, you know, run on your own treadmill, you know, finish the race that God has set before you. Many people out of jealousy or, you know, misunderstanding will set new expectations for your life. You need to recognize that they are powerful, but they are not facts. Ask yourself whose expectation you're living under. 
And I think when I read Micah, I just see that, you know, my call is to love justice, you know, to fill with mercy, walk humbly. And when I hear Father Reniero, I see that in him at 80 years old, not striving, but leading. Yes, in the stress zone, traveling all around the world, but with a countenance of peace that comes from living under the expectations of one, the expectations of Christ. I promised you that I would talk about the difference between the stress zone, if you like, and the strain zone. And I just want to show you these um, couple of paper clips. There's productive stress, which is hopefully who I'm helping you to befriend today. But there's also destructive strain. And the very first definition of stress was called Hooke's Law. Uh, it was popularized in 1678. And Hooke described force in terms of springs. And he said, force is proportional to extension. So the heavier, extend, you know, the, heavier the force, the greater the extension. And Hooke deciphered that it was a point at which the spring wouldn't spring back anymore that actually it began to distort because of the weight that it was carrying. Now, I believe that you can climb 200 staircases to the top of Mount Kinabalu, climbing the one staircase at the time. But if the gradient of the climb exceeds 55 degrees for too long, climbing those staircases over and over again will be okay, but the gradient will kill you. I had a really interesting um, news report from Nepal, the terrible tragedy that happened there just recently. And the newsreader was at base camp of Everest, and they obviously had the idea that at, at base camp of Everest, you could just walk around and give a news report. They obviously thought, you know, walking around at base camp of Everest, because you were at the bottom of the mountain, you'd know you'd be okay. And so the news reporter is at base camp, and he's trying to do a report, and he's trying to walk around at the same time. The guy could hardly breathe. He's like panting and rasping, and he's like breathless and he's trying to tell everyone what's going to happen or what's happened here it was the altitude that damaged his performance we often live up here in leadership we are at a gradient but we need to come down the mountain we need to if you like catch our breath and I believe we are incredibly resilient and we have the ability to both stretch and spring back but we have to recognize that we need to spring back. I, I, I think spring back for you is only something that you can discern. But I would say, don't do what the stress guides tell you to do. Do what's good for you. i got friends who love watching films. I sit indoors watching films. It doesn't do anything for me. I like to go running around. That does something for me. But other friends, that's... A nightmare and hugely stressful, not something that they want to do. So there's no one rule with springback, but find what your springback is and do that thing. This isn't like an indulgence, and this is where the whole identity issue is a core part of what we're doing today. Having fun is not an indulgence. Having joy in your life is not an indulgence. If you're a Christian, having a good time, it's not an indulgence. It's not something you need to repent of or be ashamed of. Jesus had a good time. Now, when we read the Bibles, we often read it in this kind of real softly pious voice. And then Jesus came along the road with the disciples, all looking really serious. And then they sat down and Jesus did some teaching. Jesus, can you imagine what a barrel of laughs he was? What a great time he had. Like Jesus was always eating and drinking with his friends. 
It strikes me as completely hilarious that having come down off the cross, been buried in a tomb, he goes up to Galilee and the first thing he does is cook the guy's breakfast. He's like, guys, you know, I know I've just come out of the tomb and I've been raised from the dead and everything, but you guys are probably quite hungry right now, so let's deal with a food issue. You know, he's like, hey, anyone for haddock? Let's do it right now. I've cooked some great haddock for you guys. So everyone come in, boys, come in. Let's eat first. We'll chat later. Now, it's remarkable. If you just come out of the tomb, if you're the resurrected son of God, the first thing you're going to do is go, oh, I think the guys need some breakfast first. We've got to get started. Or do you just kind of appear on the waters again and go, guys, I've risen from the dead. Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. Let's hang out a bit and then we'll talk about what's happened. That's the thing. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus wanders along with a couple of disciples. He's like, hey, this is going to be funny. I'm going to walk along with these two guys. I've raised from the dead. I'm going to get them to talk about me. And then I'm going to appear. (laughs) This is going to be great. So he's thinking this is really funny. So he's kind of walking along with these two guys. Oh, what's been going on in Jerusalem, guys? Oh, really? Someone was nailed to a cross and they died. Oh, and what's wrong? You're sad. Oh, oh yeah, that's tough. That sounds up. It's me! Can you imagine that joy, the fun? What a great thing to do. It's hilarious because he's funny. He's great. He invented laughter and love. Like the Christian leadership model should be pumped with this stuff. Not all pious, like all pain. Leadership should be good. Let's enjoy it together. Let's find our spring back and let's make sure that we prioritize our spring back. Now, when I was working up to a breakdown, I was um, go fishing and then someone would call and I'd try and muffle out the sounds of nature. Oh, there's a car going by. So quickly, got to go to my office. Oh, there's another car. Tweet, 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 some birds. There's some birds in the center of the city near my office. You know, you're trying to muffle out the sounds of nature. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing some stuff. No, I, I, actually, I'm having a day off. I'm going fishing. No, I couldn't say that because I was ashamed of having fun. I was ashamed. No, are you a leader who's ashamed of going to the golf course? You know, do you, oh, no, I'm, no, I can't tell anyone what I'm doing today. Do you tell your spouse not to tell anyone where you are today? Some people do that. They say, oh, if anyone asks, just say I'm busy. No, if anyone asks, say you're relaxing and having a great time and it's really good for you because you want to model what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And this rolls into, if you like, our final couple of slides and we're going to do some questions. Gratitude could change your life. Now, this, if you like, if there's anything I'm going to say today that I really believe could be the thing that will revolutionize your relationship with stress is this. It's gratitude. In the world, you know, we're doing a lot of work now in the secular world as well as in the Christian world around well-being. And gratitude is becoming increasingly interesting to secular organizations as well as Christian ones. If we return to the mountain climbing, staircase climbing idea again, those people who climb the mountain climb staircase at a time and go, oh, wow, I've done that. That's great they are more likely to return to climb the mountain a second time than the people who just get to the top and want to get down again. Because you live your life by one grateful step at a time. You live in the now when you live with gratitude. And actually, it's transforming your experience of the now as you're grateful for the now. 
Every leader I speak to, when we talk about stress, goes, oh yeah, I booked in a holiday. I'm like, yeah? And? Oh no, no, I mean, you know, I've booked in a holiday to kind of de-stress, man. I'm like, no, that doesn't work. Because actually, you know, or they say, oh, I've just got to get this project done. And when this project is done, then I'm going to relax, man. I'm going, no, that doesn't work either. Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to do this project and that project will finish and then another project will come along that's more important than your rest time and then another project and another project and then you'll say it's your holiday and then you'll say, oh, I've just got to take my phone with me because I've got to take some urgent calls. And actually the holiday becomes a complete write-off because there's some crisis back at the workplace and then you go back from the holiday feeling guilty that you've been away whilst there's a crisis at the workplace. And then you work doubly hard to make up for the fact that you feel bad about the work that you should have been doing when you're actually on holiday. And then you wonder why you're stressed. You know, gratitude can transform your experience of life right now. I said at the beginning of this talk, you don't need to do any less to have a transformed experience or relationship with stress. And that is true if you can apply gratitude to your life. Practicing gratitude is an incredibly popular psychological tool. But Paul practices gratitude in the midst of some of life's harshest circumstances. And what frustrates me is that people in the world are starting to get gratitude. But in the church, we still think we can only be thankful when our prayers are answered. It's amazing. Christians go, oh, I'll be so grateful when my prayer is answered. No, that's wrong. You need to be grateful now. You know, we've got this whole kind of market economy going on with God where we're grateful when our prayers are answered. I need a miracle so I can say thank you. No, you don't. You just need to say thank you and then there might be a miracle. You know, because actually we've got, we've, 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 we've tr- we're trading with God. We're saying, God, if you answer my prayer, I'll be thankful. But God's saying, I'm the Alpha and Omega. You just need to worship me and that's gratitude. You just thank me for who I am, not for what I do. In the fact that I love you for who you are and not because of what you do. Because what cuts with us also cuts with God. God's not saying, I love you because of what you achieve. He's saying, I love you because of who you are. And we should be saying to God, God, I love you for who you are, not because of what you give me. God is not a Cadbury's vending machine. We poke in a pound and hope a chocolate bar is going to come out and say thank you. It doesn't work like that. Gratitude should be our experience of relationship with God right now. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul talks about giving thanks in all circumstances For this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And Paul knew what it was like to suffer. And yet in all of this, he talks about being grateful. He says, I found the secret of being content in all circumstances, whether I'm naked or in prison or hungry or facing the sword, whatever the circumstances are, I found the secret of contentment and it's in gratitude to God. It's in relationship with him. You know, the Bible shows us that gratitude is a free gift. Harvard Medical School reports gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. Who would not want that? Who would not want that in their life? And yet it's in the church that we see people with glum faces. You know, imagine the Church of England, just to be narrow it down a little bit because I can represent those guys a little bit more. Imagine us if we went to church with gratitude. Ah, I'm going to church today. (laughs) I can't wait. I'm so thankful for church. It's going to be amazing. I'm so grateful. Imagine if we went to church like that. How many people go, hey, where's that guy going? He's crazy. 
I want to go where he's going. I want to follow him. You know, that actually, if we were filled with gratitude, our experience would be transformed. But it's not just your experience that's transformed through gratitude. It's everyone else's too. Imagine managers who demonstrated gratitude. Imagine if you went to work on Monday as a leader and you said to the people you manage, guys, I'm just, I'm just so grateful for what you do. Oh, but we, uh, we didn't do very much. We'll talk about that later. But I just want to say... <laughs> Thank you for you guys for doing what you do. Actually, that if thanks was our preeminent outlook, our workforce would be transformed and our leadership would be transformed too. Because actually people aren't looking necessarily for material reward, they're looking for recognition and thanks. And it's actually our biblical duty to demonstrate thankfulness to God and to God's people. In Christian leadership, I just don't think we do that enough. If you volunteer for a church, if you're a member of a church, if you've even walked into a church, thank you. It's great. Thanks for being here. Gratitude is our spiritual responsibility, but it's not dependent on our experience of the now moment. You know, we don't have to be in a good place to say thank you to God. In fact, it's when we're stressed that we need to stop and say, God, I'm going to find those things that I'm really grateful for right now. Because that shows me a new perspective of my experience. And when I'm grateful in the stress zone, I'll never move into the strain zone. People think, oh, yeah, but surely there's some life situations. Yeah, my son was really critically ill and he was in hospital for about two months when he was born. And I can honestly tell you in my whole life experience, nothing made me feel more stressed than this experience. And I found at that point, I was teetering on the edge of being brutal with God. Going, you know what, God? I've given my whole life to serve you. What are you up to right now? My boy's going to die. What are you going to do about it? I was, I was, you know, I was close to flicking God the V's, and I was thinking, this isn't, this isn't good for me. This is not good for God. And, and, and God touched my heart, you know, and He spoke to me about gratitude in that moment, and He just said, Look, what are you going to be grateful for? What are you going to be grateful for? And, and, and I remember just holding my boy's hand, just he was all in intensive care, just this tiny little fingers poking out of this little bandage. I'm just going, God, you know, if this is all I get with this boy, then I am so thankful. But my experience was transformed through gratitude. I realized that you can be thankful in all circumstances. And, and that means that we have to wake up each day and transform our attitude towards gratitude. Because actually, if we don't do that, if we rely on the good things to happen, then we will never actually experience gratitude if we're waiting for them to be grateful for. When you wake up in the morning, I want to encourage you to wake up and say, I will be grateful for this day. I will be grateful for this day. As our gratitude increases, our stress diminishes And so gratitude is the key practice when we cannot do any less. It's the key practice. It's that passage in Philippians 4.12. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Because gratitude leads to satisfaction. And I, I believe in a gospel which does not leave you dissatisfied. I believe in a gospel that is all that you need in terms of spiritual sustenance and satisfaction. The God promised that he will satisfy you with a good thing, and that good thing is in and of himself. When we come to the communion table, we eat the bread and we drink the wine, and it's a sign of our satisfaction. Sometimes I'm disappointed in the Anglican church by the smallness of the wafer, 
and, and the, 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 like the tininess of the wine. And I'm thinking, you know, if this was the bread and the wine, I'm just not sure. I'm quite satisfied right now. I want to grab a whole hunk, a whole loaf, and down a whole cup. But I'm reminded that I'm satisfied by the blood of the Christ who died for me. That's enough for me. That I'm satisfied in him and by him and through him. And so I will wake up and I will say, I will be grateful for this day, whatever it brings. And I tell you, you can climb a lot of staircases on that. You can climb a whole lot of staircases on that. I will be grateful for this day. And not only that, it's a witness to our world, a world that's fueled by dissatisfaction, to say, actually, you know what? I'm just grateful. God has transformed my experience, and I'm grateful. That's it. Great. We, I like to finish my talks early. Oh, I do. No, you think I'm joking. I do. I always finish my talks 10 minutes early because I want to give you a gift. The best gift I can give you is 10 minutes of free time to enjoy, to do something else. So that gives me 13 minutes for questions. And then you've got 10 minutes just to spend however you want it because you are time rich and time is your friend. So let's... Uh, Nidra's got a microphone, if you just want to stick up your hands. I'll try and answer as many as I can, as quickly as I can. I'd just like to ask uh, about your experience of Christian mindfulness and the use in the church in the future, because it's quite big at the moment, both in the secular, and um, Sean Lambert calls it contemplative evangelism, and I, I'd like to see something adapted to bring to, for us to use it outside to draw people in as well. Sure, yeah, I mean, actually, on the, if you go to the MindlessHold.info site, we've written a lot on Christian mindfulness. And if you're coming to Focus this summer, Sean Lambert's coming to do a seminar on uh, mindfulness practice and then a seminar on mindfulness theory. So, actually, we're, gonna, we're introducing it at Focus this summer. So, it's something to look forward to. We've just booked him uh, for that just a few days ago. I, I mean, I think the key thing about Christian mindfulness is, I mean, mindfulness, from a clinical perspective, efficacy is amazing, even compared to uh, medication and um, CBT therapies. The, the, the outcomes for mild depressive illness with mindfulness are very, very good. Um, we've done a lot of work on what it looks like to translate mindfulness in the Christian setting. We call it present contemplation. Um, and it's really about living in this present moment, as I've described today, and also living with an attitude filled with gratitude. But it's also about holding together your, the reality of what's straining you with a perspective on your experience. So it's if you're like objectifying your strain or your stress point and distancing yourself from it. You know, sometimes people say, you, you're, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees. Mindfulness is a practice which enables you to see the wood and see the trees and also see you at the same time. So I think I always urge caution where there's a clinical tool, uh, certainly one that has strong part of mindfulness, obviously has strong links to, to Buddhist faith, and we're not proposing that that's a good thing. 
but we actually believe that the gift of mindfulness or present contemplation is a God-given gift to everybody, and it's not the preserve of one faith or another. Uh, we use the parable of the uh, virgins uh, as the best sort of example of Jesus' teaching around mindfulness, that the virgins both held the lamps and waited for the arrival of the master, but kept their wicks burning and continued the duties of the virgins in the house at the same time. So it was a form of, if you like, multitasking that enabled them to be conscious of the father father's return or the, 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 the Lord's return to the house whilst keeping the light, the lamps lit and also continuing the duties of the household. And it can have a really good impact where stress is concerned because if you like the lamp might be your immediate problem to keep the lamp lit. There might be an outcome for your the business venture that you're in where the Lord's return, if you like, there's the, there's the moment you're going to float on the stock exchange. That's the big moment in the future. At the same time, you have to attend to all sorts of manual and menial tasks in the house to keep everything going. So it's that kind of three-point view. And there's lots of stuff, as I say, on the MindSoul website available for you if you're interested in mindfulness practice. But I always like to blend that with spiritual encounter with the Holy Spirit to actually say that this is, in a way, it's a form of contemplative prayer, similar to Benedictine style, to say, actually, I'm inviting God to give me his perspective on my experience. So I I make it sort of intrinsically a prayerful activity more than necessarily just a conscious activity. Great. Another question. Yeah. Yes. Hello. Um, I really liked what you said about being vulnerable as a leader. It was the point, wasn't it, that you should admit when you're stressed and that can be an engagement tool and bring people on side. But I work in really quite a tough corporate environment where I've got at least one team member who would see that as a sign of weakness and would and has taken advantage of that, actually. Yeah. So how, what, what do you, <laughs> yeah, what do it's you suggest really, around It's a that? really, really helpful point. I, I, I spoke at PricewaterhouseCoopers recently to about 140 of their accountant executives on perfectionism, which was a really interesting to do, uh, to, talk to, to talk to accountants about perfectionism. But um, it, was, it, was, it was a really interesting opportunity to kind of... I've, I've done more corporate work recently, and um, what I found is that, that actually in, in a corporate setting, talking collegiately about these kind of experiences is really helpful because normally what happens is... You know, it's similar to the, the Nikki's analogy about the lion and the spring box. When they are vulnerable, there's always a lion who wants to attack. You know, and I think sometimes people take advantage of other people's stress, strain, or their emotional circumstances. But actually, they're the ones who are delusional. You know, they, they are they are living in a delusion, and their view is obviously that being vulnerable, being human, is weak. But actually, being vulnerable and being human is strong. The, the, I think there's, you know, Solomon always asks, doesn't he, you know, why, is, why, why do the, why do the uh, evil prosper and, and the good suffer? But I think in the long-term outworking of being human, the benefits far outweigh the costs. That actually, yes, someone might take advantage of a moment of vulnerability or weakness in a leader. But actually, that person will not win in the long haul. Um, and very often the people who cannot, din- cannot accept their own weakness cannot accept weakness in others, and therefore they're blind to their own blind spots, which ultimately means they're going to crash their car. And I, and I think, I'm not, not going to will that on them, but I think we need to be authentic about who we are and let people who want to be unauthentic about themselves be unauthentic about themselves. That comes from a place of going, you know, I will be human and will be successful, however God wills it, that's my determination. What someone else wants to do, that's up to them. 
I, you know, I made a big bones about, I always talk about having a mental health problem. And to start off with, about when I first started, when I, I've got a condition called generalized anxiety disorder, which is called GAD. It's not very exciting, but they think they could get a better name for it. But the, the key thing is that, that when, I, when I was first diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder in 2005, I, I started talking about it. And, and a couple of other Christian leaders said, you know, you mustn't tell anyone about this. Because if you do, people think you're weird. And then they won't want to listen to you anymore. And I said, but I am weird. <laughs> but that, that, they're like, no, that, you know, that doesn't really matter. The key thing is that no one thinks that you're weird. And, and we, you know, we really shouldn't say anything about it. And, and I remember thinking at that time, I remember, I remember being quite I was anxious anyway. So I was thinking, oh my goodness, now everyone's going to think I'm completely nuts. Um, I remember having to make a decision about how I wanted to live my life. You know, and and I, I decided this wasn't, a, this wasn't a career issue. This was a life issue. I, I, I'm not gonna, I can't segregate myself from my work. And, and actually, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout this stuff from the rooftops. I'm going to say to everyone, I'm completely nuts. You know, this is my problem. And, and here I am. And so what's been interesting about it is, yeah, I, I've had some people say some pretty unpleasant things to me. And say, oh, yeah, you know, you're pretty weird, aren't you? And all that sort of stuff. And actually, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, bring it on. Because actually, if you want to ha- come at me like that, I'm just going to let, let that sit with you. And, you know, we can see, you know, I might be weird, but you're just not very nice. <laughs> I'd, rather be, I'd rather be weird. So I just think it's a, you know, it's a decision. We have to make a decision for how we're going to live. And I also think as Christians, if we suffer in the world of work, because we want to live authentically and be living witnesses to Christ, then that's part of the Christian life to a level. You know, and I, and I, you know, it's just worth praying into and getting friends to pray around you if you're feeling vulnerable in the workplace. But if we don't start modeling this in the church, we're never going to see it in the world. Great, a couple more. We've just got a couple more minutes before I give you guys 10 minutes of free time. Yes, hello. Um, you talked about expectations, which I found really helpful, but um, how do you approach or explain to people that are maybe placing unrealistic expectations on you as a leader how do you talk to them well i, I actually this is a very good question thank you and it's, it came up in the uh, in in the talk yesterday as well and i i, I again believe very much in in t- telling it straight that actually if we fear telling people why their expectations are over or underestimated then we're actually already capitulating to their expectations before we've even started. You see, if I'm afraid to disappoint you by telling you that your expectations of me are far too great, then I'm already under your power, which is a sign that I really need to tell you that your your expectations for me are too great or too little. So we're, we're already in a power play if we start worrying about other people's expectations of us. And, and what we actually need to do is take back the power so I was, I'm just very realistic. I say, oh, that's really nice. You, you want me to take over the world. Good for you. That's great for you. Have a really good time with that one. Just not the right person for that job. Thanks anyway. You know, I, I always talk about time as my friend. Our oh, time's really my friend. Unfortunately, it's not a very big friend. So he's just got you know, a certain amount of time. It's for me and some's for my family and some's for my rest and some's for you, but just not that much. So let's, let's talk about what that looks like. <laughs> you know, if time's your friend, then you just invite time into the room and stands behind you 
and says, yeah, it's good. This is, this is what I can do. I, I love to be realistic about what I can achieve. Because actually, what I realize is that much of life is a negotiation. Have you noticed in the workplace, people make grand expectations because they're expecting to negotiate. Christians are terrible at negotiating. I go to sort of a bazaar in Turkey. They're like, 200, 200. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, okay. They're like, no, you are meant to bargain. Oh, okay. uh, 195. No, that's not a bargain. You're still getting ripped off. One, say 100. Oh, 100. You know, I worked in Turkey for a while. They taught me how to barter. When your manager comes to you and says, I want 20% more revenue, you don't go, uh, oh, yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah, okay. And then go home and go, oh, my goodness, how on earth am I going to do this? You go, 20%? We only went up by 7% last year. This year, the markets are even harder. I'll give you 4%. He goes, no, we're not going downhill. Let's do 10%. And then you go, 7%. You'll go, well, that's the same as last year. I need to show some improvement in our forecasting. And say, okay, 8.5%. And it'll go deal. So you've gone down from 20% to 8.5% just because you decided to bargain. Now, lots of people just think, if someone tells you something, expectations aren't facts. If someone comes back at you, you go back at them. Give them something, but just don't give them everything. Some of the leaders here are going, oh, my goodness. (laughs) This is going to be tough. But it's meant to be tough. You're meant to sweat. There's meant to be some strain. But you bargain on the basis of expectations. And then once you start having a negotiation, then reality walks into the room. Because you start talking about what the real baseline looks like. And that's a good thing. Last question. Uh, oh, I hate doing this. I'm going to turn around. Nidra's going to choose. Okay. Last one. Okay, sorry. If you want to, you can always email whatever. We'll do that. Will.vanderhaarhtb.org. Okay. Hello. Hello. Um, a source of stress in my job is having a genuinely big workload with lots of um, expectations to meet of the customers I serve versus the tension and the tension between that and the expectations of my employer, which is another whole cultural issue, like the culture of the organisation and what's expected of you and how you're expected to behave. And have you got any thoughts on what the balance should be between serving the people that your job is to serve, who pay you and give you business, or perhaps um, a church analogy, church parallel might be, if you're a church leader and you spend all your time serving your parishioners and meeting their needs and flick the V's at the Church of England and say, well, you know, you may want me to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to get on and do my job. What should that balance be? It's a great question. I mean, I think, obviously, in context, there's lots of specific variables in your setting that I wouldn't be aware of. But, I mean, I'm a vision-first person, so I always ask, what's the purpose of what we're doing? You know, what, what is the purpose of what we're doing? And if the, it, there should be fruit in the purpose of what we're doing. So I, I, would in, I would be likely to invest myself for the purpose of what we're doing. So, for example, in the church, I can speak from the church. If the Church of England is saying to me, oh, yeah, we really want you to do such and such administrative project, and I'm going, oh, yeah, that's, really not gonna, that's not really the vision, is it? Then they're going to go, yeah, but, you know, you need to do that. And I'm going to go, oh, okay, well, I mean, I'm going to give a small amount of my time to that. But actually, what I want to do is to see people saved. So I'm going to invest myself where the vision is. And I think 
stress-wise, we are a lot less stressed when we're productive in line with the vision that we've received. Because actually, when we feel that we're living in line with vision, then actually we, 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 we experience far more gratitude because actually we're receiving the benefit of participating in line with the vision that we're carrying. And so we feel better about what we're doing. And there's many more moments of saying, yeah, actually, good. I'm, my anticipation is that actually you enjoy serving your customers and that meeting the needs of your customers is a key thing for you in terms of your joy and your gratitude. If you've got a bullying boss or a boss who's set an environmental tone which is less invested in the customers than your heart is, he's very lucky to have you. And actually, you should be telling him why he should be thankful for your desire to serve your customers because anyone who runs any organisation that's customer-facing knows the people who love the customers are the people who are giving the business. And actually, if you're someone who's got value added in your organisation because you're loving the customers, you're loving them in line with a vision that might not be his vision if in terms of outworking, but it's certainly his, his vision in terms of bottom line. And I would... I would also invite you all to invest yourself where your gifting is. So actually, you know, you're going to experience greater gratitude where your gifting is demonstrated than fulfilling expectations for people who are trying to press you to work against your gifting. You know, if you're working against your gifting, you're always going to be strained because actually you're going, I haven't got the resources for this. So cut back to vision, connect vision with outworking, outworking with gratitude, and gratitude with priority and saying, actually, this is where I'm really flying. In my experience of working with managers, I would say that most managers are satisfied when they see their employees working under vision, however diverse that work might be. They might demonstrate dissatisfaction, but they're normally always stressing about the things that they're stressing about and trying to push it onto their employees rather than dealing with themselves. So there's nearly always kick down. So what you'll find is the manager who's disgruntled is disgruntled because they're being forced to do something they don't want to do. So they make the culture poisonous for someone else. So it's like share the pain. And actually, it's not a good way of working. But go with vision. That will be my key point. Great. You've got time to spend and spare. Be blessed, everyone. If you want email, then do that. Thank you so much. <laughs>